girls are complicated. And welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Laurie Norris, your host for this episode, number 64, and the second in our summer series on Christian lessons from secular texts. Hope you all enjoyed last month's conversation about The Handmaid's Tale. Joining me today are Carla Ewart and Christina Lake. Hi, ladies. Please introduce yourselves for our listeners. Carla, you're up first. Cool. Hi, Laurie. Um, Thanks for having me. My name is Carla Ebert, and I am a regular panelist for Christian Feminist Podcast. Um, I work, I live in Minneapolis with my daughters. Um, I work for an organization called the Convergence Network and do sort of um, organizing of Christian leaders. I help with the membership for that organization. Um, I have another podcast called Holy Writ that I do, and I just kind of am a a wandering speaker and and writer and those types of things. So that's that's me. Awesome. Thank you, Carla. Christina, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I uh, teach at Wheaton College. I've been a professor of English there for almost 20 years. And uh, I live in Wheaton, Illinois, with my husband, who's an Anglican priest, and our 11-year-old son. Aw, that's so lovely. And I'm Laurie Norris, once and future graduate student here in Athens, Georgia. I'm finishing my dissertation on the various ways that prestige TV aesthetics are helping to reshape the way we think about things like race and class and gender in society, though it feels like I have been writing this thing forever. (laughs) I'm at the stage where I don't want to write anything ever again. I just want to watch videos on the internet. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's an important stage to get through. I understand it very well. (laughs) And speaking of... Uh, We just all want to remind our listeners to check us out and like us on the internet over there on Facebook. Right now we've got about 420 so followers, but it'd be super awesome if y'all could get us up to like 500. Victoria promises that any new followers will get their names set on air. So here's your chance to get internet famous, y'all. While you're there, (laughs) drop us a line. We'll be deciding on our fall show topic soon, and we would love to hear your ideas. On this episode, though, we will be talking about Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Christina, could you give us a little description of the book for our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Neil Gaiman is known for writing fantasy, I guess is the best description of the genre. And this book starts out with a protagonist who I'm not sure ever gets named, now that I think about it. Um, he's at a funeral as an adult, and then he this causes him to kind of re-enter his childhood, where he visits his memories of significant things that happened to him, um, but he remembers them as he would have as a child, which of course has that extra fantasy level to it, where things are on the level of cosmic universal events, and he... I'm not going to tell the whole plot, but he uh, eventually works through those different 
things that happened to him um, and has this moment of sacrifice at the end. Actually, this girl who sacrifices herself for him and then it goes back to him as an adult. That's the brief plot description. Anybody want to add to that? Um, no, I think that's actually uh, the best spoiler-free version because <laughs> while the sacrifice is sort of built into it and not really a spoiler, some of the interesting things that you learn about the story you kind of have to read and aren't really fit for a description. So, thanks! That's right. So, I came to this book as a not-so-young adult, um, according to the recommendations of my best friend, who is a high school English teacher, she finds that the text is really powerful for getting students to think about deep philosophical issues through a really entertaining book. My relationship with Gaiman, though, um, is less based on his his pleasant fantasy things and the super not-child-appropriate Sandman comics, which perhaps warped me deeply as as a child um, because I've had a giant crush on um, Dream since I was in high school and it sort of ruined all of my relationships since. Thanks, Gaiman. Um, what about you guys? What is, what is your relationship to Neil Gaiman's work or, or this book coming in? Carla, how about you? Um, so I had not read Neil Gaiman at all. Um, so this was totally new for me. And I have to say, starting the book, I was like, I was a little bit skeptical. It took me a little while to just get into the rhythm of it and the thing he was trying to do and sort of let myself go into the fantasy. Because as Christina said, it's sort of this, there there are things that happen in the narrator's life, this young boy's life, who um, is never named. He doesn't have a name in the book, but he's the narrator. We're following his point of view throughout. Um, and there are things that happen in his life that happen in life, right? He, he actually, a lodger that lives with he and his family commits suicide and he sees that the body. He um, sees that. His um, kitten gets run over. His um, father is having an affair. And then more than likely, depending on how you feel about the fantasy piece, his best friend moves away. And so um, those things happen to this boy. And, and from that, though, like as we're having his experience of it, it turns into this whole beautiful fantasy about sort of um big uh eerie universal things that these events mean or might mean in sort of a broader context and um it's just it's sort of that that experience of childhood where you're so central that everything that happens to you feels deeply profound you know what i mean mm -hmm. and and you sort of have to sort of um expand that out into big universal significance and that what I feel like Gaiman does in this is take those experiences that this boy has and then does that, just says, just lets us go into that fantasy and lets it be real and lets all these really deep meanings come out of, out of that sort of eerie childhood, childhood experience of relatively benign things, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I, it, but it took me a little while. I tend to be a bit of a realist in my, in my reading. I, I, don't usually prefer fantasy. Um, so as I read this, I kind of kept thinking, well, all right, all right, all right. But then as, as I got into it by the last, like, I don't know, 80 pages, I was just absorbed, like completely absorbed in this fantasy and all of the ways that as a child, those things feel ah, just deeply profound. And you start to see all these um, real significances and truths in your basic experiences. So, um, that that's my I don't I, I've not read anything else by Neil Gaiman I've I've watched Coraline and think it's so interesting um, and love that he kind of constantly does this eerie thing with childhood um, but I that's all I know I am 
Well, totally new. if this is your first introduction to Neil Gaiman, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. That is really appropriate, actually. And I'm excited to read more. I, I really want to read more. So, Awesome. Yeah. Hey, Christina, how about you? What's your relationship to Gaiman? Have you found it to be as profound as Carla has? Well, my relationship is similar to Carla's in that um, I teach contemporary American literature, and I've actually never been a fan of fantasy in general. Um, probably the only fantasy novel I've really loved was uh, Lord of the Rings, of course. And I'm also not much of a sci-fi reader, though I watch a lot of sci-fi. So I just, I tend to read more realistic fiction or be more interested in that. That being said, I am pretty new to reading Neil Gaiman, um, but then I started reading a lot of him and I'm really looking forward to the graphic novels. That's how I first heard about him because I... Uh, teach a course in the graphic novel and I thought about putting some of the Sandman stuff in there um, I didn't um, maybe I should have and want to be chastised for <laughs> doing that by a big fan but um, I will probably in future times that I teach the class so Ocean at the End of the Lane is one of the first novels that I've read uh, by him and really enjoyed it so well then you are welcome to uh, yes as as a giant Neil Gaiman fan who's uh read honestly the only thing i haven't read by him is good omens which is ironic because i also really love terry pratchett and they wrote that together so i don't know why i haven't read it maybe oh they did i just have this weird blind spot i don't know but um yeah yeah i've been writing a dissertation forever (laughs) (laughs) that'll cut into your reading time yeah (laughs) Uh, much like the child in this novel, I'm in that narcissistic stage where everything is about me and I have blinkers <laughs> to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so moving on to an uh, the kind of discussion about the text that I think you guys have both um, hinted at, there are a couple of things that I'd really like to talk about with relationship, or in conversation rather, with our particular summer series. So... Christian lessons through secular texts, and this, um, depending on how you want to read it, can be a very secular text or a deeply faithful one. And uh, one of the ways that I kind of read it as having a sense of faith about it is seeing Christ in Letty Hempstock, seeing the Trinity in the three Hempstock women. And um, one of the passages that first made me jump out, this jump out at me is is uh there was this there's a on page 122 in the cheap version of the book it says the narrator has just had a horrifying experience running through the rain and he's soaked through and letty saves him brings him into her family's warm cozy farmhouse and they tell him to strip off his clothes so he can take a bath in the middle of the kitchen and he's has the normal western child response of oh but i'm naked his, his actual words, much more elegant, are, I knew that naked was wrong, but the hemstock seemed indifferent to my nakedness. And the first time I read that, it sort of clicked. Like, ah, that reminds me of God and Adam and Eve. And, oh, maybe I should be paying more attention to this. <laughs> um, and then, spoiler alert, when it gets to the end, uh, Letty literally sacrifices her her life by throwing her body atop the narrator to protect him from these beasts that are trying to rip out his heart. Um, So 
she gives herself up, but she doesn't die. Uh, she just go. Her family puts her back into her ocean, and then they say that she is visiting Australia. She's on the other side of the ocean, um, and so there are these moments that are kind of literal, but then there are also moments that are much more metaphorical. And one that I know the three of us are really interested in um, that references Christ obliquely. Uh, sort of the opening of the gospel of john and the word in the beginning there there was the word and the word was with god and the word was god words and the power of language features very prominently in this book specifically on a passage in pages 57 through 58 that i am going to read for us now because it it's just one it's just really beautiful language but also it would benefit everyone to hear the full version of it so i have dreamed of that song of the strange words of that simple rhyme song and on several occasions i have understood what she was saying in my dreams in those dreams i spoke that language too the first language and i had dominion over the nature of all that was real in my dream it was the tongue of what is and anything spoken in it becomes real because nothing said in that language can be a lie it is the most basic building brick of everything in my dreams i have used that language to heal the sick and to fly once i dreamed i kept a perfect little bed and breakfast by the seaside and to everyone who came to stay with me i would say in that tongue be whole and they would become whole not be broken people not any longer, because I had spoken the language of shaping. And because Letty was speaking the language of shaping, even if I did not understand what she was saying, I understood what was being said. So, uh, ladies, what are some of your thoughts on this, prote- this particular passage and some of the other ways that Gaiman positions Letty and her mother and her grandmother as Christ figures, as as reflections of the trinity carla sure um i mean i think that i would i would i wouldn't i wouldn't imagine that gaiman was intentionally trying to write an image of the trinity or even a christ figure um c.s lewis talks about like how these characters are these these uh like uh, messiah type characters are a constant in mythology if you go back that this this type of character shows up again and again and again so I would imagine that it, it would seem unlikely to me, based on the little bit that I've read about Neil Gaiman, that he was actually creating sort of a, a Christ figure on purpose. But I think because he's deeply grounded in mythology, that he that this type of character, the one who is is uh, sort of the creator and the and the one who is able to save and and that kind of thing, um, is a constant sort of recurring mythological character. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we talked a little bit, too, about, of course, the parallel between the three goddesses, the maiden, mother, crone, um, goddess, three goddesses, um, trinity, basically, a a female trinity um, that some pagan... It's it's mythological, it's it's used in pagan worship, it's Mm -hmm. it's a a, a different trinity than our... Holy masculine <laughs> Christian patriarchy Trinity that we that we uh, acknowledge, um, um, and I know that that's more complex for lots of people. I know that God is neither male nor female; that the Holy Spirit is often framed as female, but also in the way that I grew up, it was primarily framed as male. So, mm-hmm. um, I would I would say that likely Gaiman is is playing with this mythological idea more than actually trying to set up any reflection of 
a particular Christian ideal, obviously. Um, yes. Can I um, jump in here? Yeah, please do. Yeah, um, Carla, I'm glad you brought up C.S. Lewis because in my mind, there are two ways to think about myth, the C.S. Lewis way or, say, the right. Joseph Campbell way. And I think right. Neil Gaiman is definitely on the Joseph Campbell side. And just to briefly describe the difference, C.S. Lewis, when he writes myth, he does it because it mirrors a fundamental reality about Christ and his incarnation. And all myths are kind of in abeyance to that um, actual fundamental ontological reality that is the person of Christ. Joseph Campbell, on the other hand, is more the structuralist type approach to myth, which is that it's a psychological reality, which makes it no less real, um, but it doesn't have the fundamental ontological reality of Christ becoming you know, man, God actually becoming man, actually dying on the cross for our sins and so forth. So for Joseph Campbell, all of these stories are equal to one another. One is not more fundamental than the other. And I think Neil Gaiman is just drawing on that mythological landscape, if you will, and making the argument that stories are the things that are real. And right. and then we have a psychological, uh, you know, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, feeling for that. Right, right. Which, which I love. I love that idea because that's, I think, part of what <clears throat> Lewis is saying. While he does say that there is sort of one central true myth, he also talks about all the myths sort of having that appealing in that same way to that place in us that is drawn to these things. You know what yes. I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> and so this passage for me, I think it's so beautiful. And I love this idea that there's sort of sort of a real, a real language. And when we speak that language, what it does is create. And what it does is is create wholeness and that it's not a language we understand in words, but it's somehow understood deep in our, in our souls. Yes. And that, that whole idea, um, having that just said in this way, it was, it was mm -hmm. so beautiful for me, that mm -hmm. idea of there being, uh, that we have the same capacity as Jesus as creator to create with, with this, do you know what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. Something about yes. that was so appealing and, and so, and felt in that place in me, it hit that right, that mythos place that felt, real you know what i'm saying i like that so. i like the mythos place i like the term the mythos place because <laughs> we'll just coin that we'll go from yeah, there we will all of us as human beings have that mythos place the the, right. the ways in which we touch these fundamental realities of being a human right um and as you pointed out carla to begin with the uh, fact of this child experiencing significant things like his father having an affair right and not knowing how to process it, but knowing it's significant. And right. that's, it touches his mythos place, right? Because right. That, there's a deep brokenness that comes from that sin, right? We could, we could agree to call it sin, Gaiman probably wouldn't, but he knows it's wrong, right? Um, but doesn't know how to process it fully. Right. And so he processes it through this, this mythos place. I th and you said... Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, you said something earlier that ties into that so well about um, about our, our awareness of these things as children. Anyway, I, I would love to hear you say it again. <laughs> oh, yes. Like, uh, there's, there's a sense, especially with the frame narrative of the book, where it's the adult coming back, sitting down, 
and remembering all of these fantastical things, there's a sense that the child, the seven-year-old narrator, is experiencing significant traumas for the first time and doesn't really have anything else to compare them to. And so you could say that he's creating these fantastical mysteries, these myths around him in order to process his trauma. Or you could say it's actually happening and um, the world is a supernatural place. Um, But the adult version of himself has lived a life of of constant traumas and and we all sort of that's what growing up is is being tested and and consistently put through different sorts of pain in order mm-hmm. to mature and by the time we are matured into adults we lose that sense of mythic possibility because we're desensitized to it the yes. trauma has become mundane and we don't need fantasies to explain our painful realities anymore though in the book clearly makes it 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 evident that we are still attracted to that the simplicity of the fantastical the 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 simplicity of the mysteries of faith as, as it mm-hmm. were it's something that we still need and and you can see the the narrator uh, continually goes back to to this ocean at the end of his lane the um well it's hard to say if it's Jenny Hemstock or old Mrs. Hemstock but one of the women um, <laughs> one of the women one of the women at the end tells him uh that he's been there at all these significant moments in his life any time he reaches a new level of of trauma that he can no longer process as mundane he he returns to this place and remembers the fantastical and it gives him the ability to grow and move forward from that and it's it's something very attractive in the book uh there's a a quick passage um where the narrator is talking with letty about how to get rid of the monster in their life and and how we don't want to kill her we just want her to go home because there's this compassion in inherent in letty and he asks i wish you'd explain properly i said you talk in mysteries all the time and then sort of sets us up to think that he's annoyed with her but then it immediately follows with i was not scared though and i could not have told you why i was not scared i trusted letty just as i had trusted her when we had gone in search of the flapping thing beneath the orange sky I believed in her, and that meant I would come to no harm while I was with her. It's the gay men recognizing that that need that we all have, that longing for something that can't be known completely, and finding comfort in it, even in the midst of of terror. Really, right. I I think that's pretty dang right. beautiful. Yes, it is. And I wanted to point out that there's many ways, of course, which Gaiman is, can be seen as a romantic, right? Oh, Romanticism, yes. the view of the imagination, the child is the father of the man. And the reason why the child is the father of the man is because the child knows by way of his imagination or her imagination the true significance of things, right? It's the adults who have gone into ruts and... Um, follow, I can't remember how he puts it in this book, but follow set paths where children explore. 
right? Exa- oh, yeah. Right. That's a great passage. Yeah, mm-hmm. children have power that is available to them that adults don't have, but it also comes paradoxically with the lack of complete power, right? Because children have no power. The adults right. have the power. But the power that children have is more significant than the power that adults have. Um, right. To see things the way they, I think, really are. Uh, so in a way that the fantastical vision version of events is more true, Um Right. The fact, for instance, let's take to me, the central event of the novel is the father's um, infidelity. Right. He makes this woman into a monster. Right. Mm -hmm. Because she is a destructive monster who literally sucks the family's blood. Right. (laughs) By not literally, but being a flea, literally in the fantasy world, she sucks their blood. But metaphorically, she is destroying that family. Yes. And uh, so he understood the child is the one whose imagination helps him to perceive what is really, in fact, happening, the significance of the event. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does, it does make sense. I, I, I just have to go in to say <laughs> that because I, I, um, I think that that is how the son, of course, perceives it. And that there is I, I, as a feminist, I have to say the father is is making a choice that this woman isn't destroying their family. That the father is okay, making okay. a choice that is I just have to throw right. that in there because it felt yes. for a minute like oh, we're gonna I we're agree. gonna I, go I didn't deeply mean to into blame it on her. Yes. Right, okay. right. But yes. in the story, you're right. Like that she is as, as a kid as the, the thing that she is in the fantastical world is a flea. And and that is that is the deal. And she is as you know, preying on this family in that way. And that's how he the narrator is perceiving her um, and is is feeling like she's impacting his father's brain and he's in, she's impacting his father's behavior in ways that are making his father dangerous to him too. And all of that is is um, yeah, like you said, like this this deep understanding and also misunderstanding of the thing that's happening, right? So there is a power yes. in childhood and there is a blindness in that same thing, which is to take a thing and to blow it into a fantasy a fantasy that that isn't in line with reality. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, like absolutely. it's it's a power and a weakness. But I, I yesterday I watched this video. Do you guys know who Jedediah Jenkins is? Nope. Okay. No. So he's he's on Instagram, he but he's a kind of a speaker and writer and all of these things. But he um I watched this video and a thing that Brian McLaren was doing for Convergence, um, just as a as a piece of information. But he did this whole Jedediah Jenkins did this whole bike ride where he rode from Oregon down to like South America, uh, all the way to the tip of South America. He rode his bike and. In this little video, he was talking about why he did that thing. And and he talked about how as children, we are constantly enamored by things because everything is new. And our brain is literally, like neurologically speaking, carving new pathways all the time. So there's a constant sense of sort of like euphoria and intoxication. And, you know, because yes. all of those things are happening literally in our pathways. And, the, and right. he talked about how. He heard so many 80-year-old people say, life just went so fast. I was just 30, you know, 20 minutes ago, and now I'm 80, and it went so fast. And he was talking about how it's routine and rote process that ends up making time just slip by without us noticing it. And so he was challenging himself to do something he was afraid of, something out of the norm, in order to keep carving new pathways in his brain, in order to keep his attention that alert to life yes. so that it would just go by, you know? And and that's the thing that feels so interesting to me. Like as adults, how do we like as how do we keep our brains as alert to the moments of life, the actual deep meanings of things, while not being as as 
I want to say gullible maybe as children, you know? Right. How do, how um, do we, that's the great how do we mature romanticism? Yeah. But not lose right. the the beauty of our initial naivete. Right, right. Hmm. But I, I didn't mean to get us super off track from the book, but I no. it just Oh, no, it's actually a really, it's a, it's a great tra- transition to another issue that I think is really significant that the book raises um, implicitly in the way that we dumb down important things for children by assuming that they can't process uh, deep philosophical issues. So I'm wondering what you guys think about how the book talks about philosophy talks about faith of any sort and what lessons we could take from that to apply to how we teach children about our faith and about how the world works on a deeper level christina what about okay there's a there's a passage um in 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 the book where it's talking about how adults can't really be trusted with children's knowledge says i wanted to tell someone about the shilling that got stuck in his throat but i did not know who to tell i knew enough about adults to know that if i did tell them what had happened i would not be believed adults rarely seemed to believe me when i told them the truth anyway why would they believe me about something so unlikely um, yes, that yeah, comes that's up a, a very significant passage, yes, because again, child is the father of the man, and the child has some insights here that um, he, in a sense, knows that no matter what he says to his parents, the parents are going to have a an inability, because they're parents and adults, because they're adults, to truly understand the deep significance of what's happening. Um, so, the way that Gaiman is describing that is, of course, through the fantasy projection, you know, the, the, the made-up stuff. But the reality of it is what is underpinning it, in my view, right? It, it Because these things are significant and they are happening, that the child is trying to find a way to say, this is a significant thing that's happening to me and nobody is, is, is listening, right? Now, some of it is just narcissism and the child being the center of the universe and all of that, and, and Gaiman talks about that too. Yep. But I, I think mo- more of it has to do with um, that things impact children so deeply, right? I kept thinking of Henry James's novel, What Maisie Knew, actually. Mm, it's sort yeah. of like a realistic take on this, I mean, it's a, a fantastic novel about how a child experiences uh, a divorce, um, and through the child's eyes, things are, as we know, blown up, right? And the child always blames him or herself for the parents' divorce, you know, that sort of thing. And James really gets at the central sort of horrors of that, and I think Gaiman is trying to to do this with this emphasis on um, children feeling like they're not believed by adults. Carla, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I, I, I think that's fabulous. That, that little passage that you picked, Laurie is yeah, significant in that, that, and, and like you're saying, Christina, the traumas that happen as children um, that, that need to be spoken as traumas and that, that grownups are constantly trying to diminish into benign yes. events. Right. Yes. But but children but need to be able. Yes. And children need to be able to speak them as traumas and be heard in that way that that, yes, this is a big deal. And what you're feeling and all that is actually really important, you know. And so 
so I think absolutely. And I know as a parent myself, like when my kids have come to me with things, I feel a sense of I'm the problem solver and therefore I should make this smaller so that they can handle yes. it. And the right. truth is what I need to be able to do is to step into their grief and to be able to empathize with their feeling That's so that that, well gets, that gets validated rather than trying to say, oh, no, the thing you're feeling is actually smaller than you think. It's that I would step into that bigger space with them and let that part be real. Um, yes. So, and, you know and what? I think That's like, very well said. Yeah. My son is, is slightly autistic and um, he is very afraid of thunderstorms. And so I have the same issue in trying to process and help him process his fear. I don't want to minimize it and because what I would be minimizing is his feeling right Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and and saying to him oh you don't really feel that when he really does he's very afraid he's terrified of of thunderstorms and and it's shaping the way he views the world so I need to understand that right absolutely no yeah and yeah my daughter and I have this constant conversation this is this is sort of the antithesis of that where she keeps saying to me she'll ask me at times she's three um can god see me right now and i want to keep telling her god is you are in god you know god is around you all like there's not like a separate thing seeing you it it, god is experiencing all that you experience you know what i mean like that sort of complexity there and trying to expand her understanding but I think where she is right now there's also such a concrete thinking which says God either sees me or God doesn't see me and a a, a more complex understanding of that is is difficult for her so like it's interesting to work through with them (laughs) the different stages of their their development and their understanding but yeah yeah the literal way that children uh, approach the world even when they they respond to it with fantasy it's everything is still taken at face value and i think the book does an excellent job of of explaining how the child's mind is getting there like the way uh, when it first starts out um it's the 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 day that the really bad stuff starts happening um, the narrator just wakes up and he's going downstairs to read his comic book and have breakfast. And he makes a point of telling his father not to burn the toast because his dad always burns the toast. And so mm. this burnt toast motif comes up frequently where his dad will eat the toast and pretend he likes it. And then later on, we the, the, the narrator reveals, when I was much older, he my dad confessed to me that he had not ever liked burnt toast, had only eaten it to prevent it from going to waste, and for a fraction of my, a moment, my entire childhood felt like a lie. It was as if one of the pillars of belief that my world had been built upon had crumbled into dry sand. All over something so simple and forgettable from an adult's perspective that this act, this pretending that we do, oh, yeah, dr- burnt toast, it's so great. Mm, eat your vegetables. They're delicious. Oh. <laughs> and, right. and children take but us at yeah. face value. They don't see they, the subterfuge. Yeah, and right. not only that, what they have really experienced is their parent lying to them. Yeah, right. right. Yes. That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line, and the child is the one who kind of gets that. There's that, again... Like in Huckleberry Finn, right? The child understands more deeply uh, the moral truths uh, than sometimes adults do. Um, And I think that was a little bit of a reflection of that. I also feel 
I should point out, I, I found out from reading Wikipedia, if Wikipedia is to be believed, that <laughs> Neil Gaiman had the experience of the car, of his father's car being driven by this guy and him committing suicide in it. Oh, wow. So yeah. that yeah. was his own experience as a child. So mm-hmm. chew on that for a while. Yeah, right? I think right. the book is specifically set up and we don't have a narrator's name um, because so much of it is inspired by uh, Gaiman's autobiography, um, which go back and reread it and now just picture Neil Gaiman as a tiny little boy with his little fluffy black kitten and it's mm-hmm. it just breaks your heart over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it explains an awful lot about some of it his really more does. adult um, art that he yeah, so that Actually, go ahead. There, at the end of my book, there's an interview with him, um, uh, and it and he the interviewer actually asks him about that, if how autobiographical how autobiographical it is of his childhood, and he and he said it's, and I think you know he said there these some of these things that happened to me, and some of it I didn't didn't all know about, and also like it's also just images, you know how as a child you have an image of of the pond at the end of the lane, and somehow it seems mystical. But so that image stays with you, and same thing with like the car and the um, this opal miner, like mm-hmm. these things that were sort of images that linger. And I think he said they incubated in him for a long time, mm-hmm. or composted. Mm-hmm. Maybe was the word he used, but it was pretty great. Um, and so like those were the images that sort of just sat there until they sort of gelled into this whole um, whole thing. So I love that mm-hmm. idea that sometimes the images or the pieces can be autobiographical without the story being. Um, and that was how mm-hmm. he kind of talked about it, which I thought was interesting. Yes, which is the way a poet would talk about it, right? I kept thinking of W.S. Merwin, for instance. I mean, any of the the sort of deep image poets like Robert Bly, or I mean, they understand that our access to things come through these images that are in that way universal. The ocean, right? Yeah. We were talking before we started talking uh, online or on the, being recorded. What does the ocean signify? It's a huge symbol, right, of a, of a lot of different things. Um, but it's primarily an image and an image of vastness, right, mm-hmm. in which we experience phenomenologically as vastness. Um, right. And then not to mention baptism and, you know, all of these other images of being cleansed and things that are associated with the ocean, right? But we, we encounter it. That way we encounter those deeper realities through very simple yet profound images, Right, right. I would love to ask you guys, because you're both parents and I am the world's greatest aunt, how (laughs) do you think we can extrapolate from these lessons that we're learning here with this book into the way that we talk with children about Mm. not only their traumas, but also about our faith and about believing in things, especially in, in light of the way that we sort of casually and cruelly in our thoughtlessness lie to them for convenience or expediency's sake. Mm-hmm. Christina, I loved what you just talked about with this sort of vastness within the simple so much. And I think that to me is the thing I want to, I want to reinforce in my kids, like um, about faith is that, that it is your, um, that it, that it in some way validates the thing that feels realist to you, even if it's not reality. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. that it somehow allows for that. I mean, I, I have, like, I have, as I was talking just now about the, 
pond at the end of the lane. I mean, I have I grew up out in the country and I, I have these experiences of being in a beautiful setting and feeling like there's no way this isn't mystical, like that this isn't a thin place. You know what I mean? Like it has right. to be. It's too beautiful. I'm too moved internally to, to, to just be experiencing the science of a sunset. You know what I mean? Like, like yes. there's something more. And like, to me, that's the thing that, that faith allows us. It allows us that mystery. Um, it allows us that, that validating of those moments of mystery and not having to water them down to simply my, you know, simply science or simply my neurology or simply those things. It is also those things, but faith allows us to have those things come alive <laughs> into fantasy yes. almost, you know what I mean? Our and that those places, our mythos yes. places, like, and that's the thing that I, I want to, when my children are having one of those experiences, be able to say to them, yes, yes, that, you know what I mean? Go with that. And that, that goes back to the, the passage you read about Letty, about how he trusted Letty and he knew in the same way that he knew that grass was mm -hmm. green and the same way that he knew that roses had woody thorns, he knew he could trust Letty. And, and I want my kids to be able to go to that place and go, there is a goodness and a realness in God mm -hmm. that I can depend on. And that's the thing mm -hmm. I want to, to, to fall back onto and to know that they are a part of that goodness and that realness and that they have that experience. So Though, this is to me the way that I, I want to talk with my kids about faith, and it's still so abstract <laughs> that I'm not sure it's, that it, how helpful it is, but that's what I want to reinforce for them. So, I don't know, Christina, did you have a way that's, that that works? That's very well said. Um, this, this is touching on an area that I've just finished writing a book about, so my mm -hmm. mind is just exploding, but it, my book is not about speaking to children, but it's about how you know, the scientific naturalist worldview forecloses basically yeah. and any thoughts about there actually being a God, a personal God who, you know, moves in our lives and the foreclosing is, is a failure of the imagination yes. right, on the, on the part of, of people like uh, Daniel Dennett and these guys that I spent a lot of time writing about. And, and it's interesting because the way they describe Christians, I'm talking about the new atheists, Mm -hmm. um, Richard Dawkins and those guys, is that we've never gotten out of our childhood, right? Uh, as if that's a bad thing. As if that's <laughs> a bad thing, right? Because, oh, we need to grow up and realize that the sunset is described as you were talking about just, you know, because of the atmosphere and some scientific, you know, realities, uh, instead of thinking that it actually is significant and it was created and it means something that uh, I feel that when I look at it. Right, that this is more than what I'm just seeing, right? Yeah. Uh, so I I couldn't agree more with the way that uh, Carla, you're talking about speaking with your children because with the autism with my son, it presents an additional challenge because there is often a lack of of connecting at the personal level. Um, that mm -hmm. imaginative the imagination tends to be more constrained, right, than among quote unquote you know, normal children. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to seek out those places where he's more open. Right. Um, I think that's a challenge, um, for all of us, even with neurotypical children. Um, Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's that it comes back to that, um, sincere 
face value literalist streak that seems to run especially through toddlers who have just learned the word no and then learned the word why um they they kind of demand answers and finding a balance between well it's the vastness it is the mystery and no, it is because the sun is re- the sun sends out light waves that reflect refract against particles in the air. Well, what's a particle? Well, what's this? And we have to be able to find a balance between those. And I would argue that it's art that helps us find that balance that mediates between the the cold hard reality of physical existence and the beautiful mystery of the thing that is beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we call God, that we see in in Christ, um, it's it's just really hard, and I I honestly don't know practically how to do it. Um, I get exhausted with my sister's children, who are incidentally the world's most perfect children, and uh, <laughs> can have no flaws whatsoever. Um, but they they do. They ask me things, and it rubs up against the limits of my understanding and my ability right. to to mediate between the vast and the, the concrete, the Ar- the Aristotelian and the Platonic. And mm-hmm. weirdly, five-year-olds, they don't want to talk about Aristotle. So strange. Right. Fancy that. <laughs> this, this feels like it leads so well into this one passage that I, I was interested in, mm-hmm. um, that I'm just going to go there. Okay. Um, so this is when, so he has been, the narrator has been in a fairy circle, and that's where Letty told him to go to be safe. And he has been there and he has been safe, uh, protected, but experiencing all these uh, shadows trying to pull him out of the fairy circle, even a shadow of Letty who was trying to pull him out of the out of the, the circle. And he knew by her behavior that it wasn't actually Letty. He knew that Letty would come into the circle with him, right? Yeah. And so he didn't go out. He stayed in. He was safe, which is what Letty had asked him to do. And then she came in to the circle with a bucket, right? And in this bucket, she had water from the pond. So she had the ocean in a bucket, right? So mm-hmm. the narrator climbs into the bucket and finds himself immersed. And, and in that immersion, he can breathe. He can see more clearly. He has sort of an experience of the universal, of the all-knowing, or however you want to talk about it. Um, and, and when he looks up, he sees Letty differently. He sees her as sort of a, a shimmering silken fabric um anyway so yeah. he he, cl- he gets out of the bucket he actually wanted to stay in it and she said you can't stay in there you'll dissolve you, you won't die you'll dissolve in that there will be not enough you in one place for a you <laughs> which yeah. is so interesting to me i loved that but then on the next page there's this passage and um he says i looked at letty in the moonlight is that how it is for you i asked is what how it is for me do you still know everything all the time she shook her head she didn't smile she said be boring knowing everything. You have to give all that stuff up if you're going to muck about here. So you used to know everything? She wrinkled her nose. Everybody did. I told you. It's nothing special, knowing how things work. You really do have to give it all up if you want to play. To play what? This, she said. She waved at the house and the sky and the impossible full moon and the skines and shawls and the clusters of bright stars. I wished I knew what she meant. It was as if she was talking about a dream we had shared. And for a moment, it was so close in my mind that I could almost touch it. So that passage I, I love so much. And it makes me think of some of what we're talking about with the, 
the conflict between the knowing of things and play, right? Yeah. Like those things, like the knowing of how the how the sunset works versus the experience of the sunset, right? Those two things are are connected and and also not. And that idea that we to play or as we were just talking about like to stay in our childhood as Christians or whatever <laughs> it is that we're doing, like you do almost have to sometimes let go of the knowing, right? Uh -huh. But then so often we as Christians can be accused of, of uh, laziness, intellectual laziness. So that's a thing that I, I believe in science. I believe in evolution. I believe in global warming. Me personally, I don't know that we all do. You know, those are things that matter. And, and we need to take that knowledge into account as we play. But we also don't need to be like so bound in knowledge that we stop creating or we stop playing. So I, I just, I love that, that idea of how do we both maintain and, and be creative in the ways that we interact with knowledge, but also let go of knowledge enough that we get to play, you know, so we that can we're not experience the awesome in, in its original context and not necessarily the colloquial way that we use it now, but that, that sense of the sublime, you kind exactly. of, if you know exactly how the sausage is made, sometimes it ruins the meal, but then other times it reveals the beauty because you see all all of the little pieces at play. Personally, that's why I believe that God, like in science and, and evolution, because why wouldn't God figure out a really elegant and efficient method for the universe to work? It's it, it's real pretty, yeah. and there's a it's beautiful. Yeah, there's beauty in the knowing, just as there's yeah. magic in the in the release in the what. Uh, there's a passage. Right there, the description of going into the bucket, it was like stepping backwards into a swimming pool you didn't know was there and falling. There's something terrifying in that, but there's also something exhilarating in it. Mm -hmm. And being willing to take that step backwards into the unknown opens up your potential for experiencing the fullness of creation um, more than just the, the simple interaction of matter which is also when you just think about the existence of matter, the existence of electrons and neutrons and dark energy and dark matter. It's fascinating. And I think the book tells us and reminds us that we need that sense of wonder because it helps us deal with what becomes mundane. It helps us process things that we don't know or understand and it's kind of the thing that makes all of the trauma worth it. It's the play that justifies living in this world. The the fun of it of it all. Right. Like yeah. she says that that this whole thing, like if you're gonna play here with the moon and the you know, if you're gonna be in this place you you have to experience it sometimes as play. And and even then the traumas hold less power a little bit. Like, okay. This is this is all. It's that Julian of Norwich, you know. All is well, oh, yeah. all will be well. You know, like if if you hold on to that, all is well and all will be well, or however she she said it. I'm not saying it right. <laughs> um, you, you get to play in spite of trauma. Like those traumas exist, and mm -hmm. I play. You know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, there's even in the the book um, an express mention of that. Um, so. We've, we've talked around it a little bit, but one of the moments of trauma situated around um, 
the narrator's father's adultery is that, um, according to the narrator, the the flea influenced his father to hurt him. But uh, basically, the narrator is talking back and sassing his father, and his father, who refuses to hit children, who makes a point of not hitting children, gets uh, so angry that uh, he almost drowns his son. He He holds him under the water in in the bathtub in a, in, in, in a terrifying scene. And then uh, the narrator revisits this later with um, Jenny Hempstock and where they've magically cut this moment out of his, yeah. his time for him and they're giving him the opportunity to re- erase it entirely, to forget it, to, to burn it away. And he says, if I burn this, I ask them, will it have really happened? Will my daddy have pushed me down into the bath? Will I forget it ha- It ever happened? Jenny Hempstock was no longer smiling. Now she looked concerned. What do you want, she asked. And he says, I want to remember because it happened to me and I'm still me. I threw the little mm-hmm. scrap of cloth onto the fire. There's this sense that even the trauma, this horrifying thing that he has experienced, the worst thing that he has ever experienced is still an integral part of himself. And as a seven-year-old, mm-hmm. he recognizes that it still makes him who he is. It is still mm-hmm. necessary. And I think, that's, I think that's beautiful. And so the way that we can get through our own traumas is, is, is acknowledging that they have a role to play for us. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and, and, and that seems to be um, what Letty and the Hempstocks in general, how they view the world is that everything needs to be in balance and everything sort of has its own place and its purpose because mm-hmm. they're not yes. there to kill the monster. They're there. They want to help the flea. They want to yeah. send it back home so it can be happy and live in a world that's supposed to be where. That's where, it's yeah. Way, yeah. Well, and that, and also saying about the monster, this flea and other fleas that have come into the, the, I don't know, reality at different times that when they talk about them, they come to give people what they want. Mm -hmm. That's why they come. They're not like in their intent malicious, but they, they give so much of what one wants that it becomes malicious or it experienced maliciously, like with the coin in his mouth, like people want money, but not when you're choking on it. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what this flea at first was doing was like giving money to people and then it has this relationship with his father um anyway it's just it's it's just really interesting to me i agree that the compassion with which the hemp stocks and the book treats even the the monster or the opponent or the villain is with such compassion and such kindness you know um that i i loved that that there actually is a place for all things this just isn't that place you know, yeah. So. Yes. It rem- and it reminds me of of our mission to see Christ in everything, and to see Christ in everyone, even the people that we don't really like or the people we disagree with. We we're called upon as Christians to recognize divinity in them. It, the people we hate are made in God's image, so we're called to have that same compassion and to to. Do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Try and make it so that they're in a safe place. Get them home. Get them happy. And, and mm-hmm. don't shove coins down people's throats. 
<laughs> that's that's the moral of the story. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Okay, we can wrap everything up there. We tied it a bow on it. Don't shove coins down people's throats. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to speak a, a little bit about the question of desire because the issue of how desire is treated um, in this book is what brought me to my mythos place. Um, you know, when C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis writes um, his myth, he really understands desire. I'm thinking of um, a book, Till We Have Faces, mm. uh, yeah. that understands desire and how it's connected to all of us. And, and this is where I get to read my favorite passage on page 185, right? oh, yeah. where it's talking about desires. Uh, how can you be happy in this world? You have a hole in your heart. You have a gateway inside you to lands beyond the world you know. They will call you as you grow. There can never be a time when you forget them, when you are not in your heart, questing after something you cannot have, something you cannot even properly imagine, the lack of which will spoil your sleep and your day and your life until you close your eyes for the final time, until your loved ones give you poison and sell you to anatomy. Mm -hmm. And even then, you will die with a hole inside you and you will wail and curse at a life ill-lived. But you won't grow. You can come out, and we will end it cleanly, or you can die in there of hunger and fear. You know, to my mind, this is where the, this book is just fantastic, right? It mm-hmm. it, it, it speaks to the, these desires that, that we all have, this longing for something to fill the hole. Yeah. And uh, we search for it, and... The father, the adulterer, has let that in, right, um, to their lives by, you know, committing adultery. And and, and, and and part of this is, of course, a fall from innocence to experience where the protagonist, right, is understanding that those desires are never going to go away, right? There's always going to be something that we long for that we can't have, that we don't even know what it is. We can't even name it, an unnamed desire. And as Christians, we would say, well, that's a desire for God, right, for for the not yet, um, yeah. for beatitude. Um, and Gaiman's not going to call it that, but he's at least acknowledging, and this is, the again, the mythos place of the book, he's acknowledging that that desire is real and it's in everybody. I think that's really beautiful. I also think that is an excellent place to actually wind down our conversation because um, we're, we're right about an hour. So wrapping things up, uh, do you guys have any recommendations that you would like to give for our listeners, things that they could read further or Gaiman-related things for them? Uh, Christina, do you have a recommendation? I do. I am sitting here holding a copy of American Gods, which is a really amazing novel by Neil Gaiman. And I'm not going to read it, but if you turn to page 643 uh, and you will see this kind of uh, view of myth that I was just talking about where he basically says that all religions are metaphors and this is how we you know structure our reality so it's a good place to to get that sense of the importance of myth for Gaiman awesome now have have you seen the tv show I have not okay because I have to sort of coattail your recommendation and recommend the tv show but everybody you got to binge it all at once because it is shot the same way that the novel is structured it is a very unusual television show 
but I didn't think it was out. It's already out. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, uh, they just wrapped up the first season on oh. Stars, so I don't know if it's out on DVD or streaming yet. Um, but if you can get your hands on it, uh, it's pretty exquisite. Um, wow! Yeah, yeah. But it, it, you really read the book first. Absolutely, read the book first. Carla, do you have any recommendations well, or anything? I will. I will add to the show notes uh, links to a couple of reviews. I want to read more reviews on this book and and on him in general. So I'm going to link them there for myself and for our listeners. Awesome. <laughs> um, there's one in the Guardian right now that um, is, or one that I looked at in the Guardian that's just about the idea of this being either a, a, a book for adults or a book for children, that kind of complexity. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So mm-hmm. my recommendation is, is go out if you're grown up and read Sandman all the way through. It's um, brutal. At Which time. I'm planning to do. I am planning to do that. So uh, one caveat, it is, it does occasionally delve into horror comics. So it is, it is rated MA. It is mature. Um, but the devil looks like David Bowie, and that is totally intentional. <laughs> and it's it's just it's so great. It's it's so great. Um, even the extensions that he's done recently, they're pretty okay. Um, but yeah, go read Sandman. All right. So thank you all for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Christina and Carla, I'm Laurie. Tune in in about a month when we'll finish our summer series and discuss Marvel's Guardian of the Galaxy 2. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.